Hello, and welcome to the Reform Millennials podcast. This show is dedicated to identifying macro waves or trends that millennials can jump on to better invest their time and money. Our goal is to help improve your life and business by being early and right on those trends. Learn more and stay up to date by visiting our website at reformedmillennials.com or join the discussion in our Facebook group, also named Reformed Millennials. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Reform Millennials. On today's episode, I have a very special guest. I don't think it's appropriate for me to introduce him myself, but I want to start out with a quick quote. I've been, for the last, I don't know, 10 days, kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive into ESG, and I have to admit, I was quite the baby going into it, and I still feel like I'm an idiot now, but uh, a quote that I had kind of um, fallen into and I kept rem- thinking about as I was reading and, and listening to stuff on the subject was from Peter Drucker, which is what you choose to measure then gets measured and approved upon. So the way that I, I looked at that, it was it was kind of around this theory of or this understanding of what we choose to focus our money and our attention on tends to be what we invest in and improve upon. And that's where, I mean, it's the basis of all alpha or just outperformance or change in the world. And to me, I mean, you'd have to be blind to not see the narrative in the world where we're trying to work towards a cleaner environment to a, a more equitable role in, on boards and, and in our society. If you look at our politics, it is uh, mashed in all of this stuff. And to think that markets wouldn't also represent that would be ignorant. So for me, that was it was really refreshing. It was also what I think is, and this is the focus of our entire podcast, is a an identification of, I, I think, a future trend that is not going away and is only going to get bigger and stronger. So Q, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll kind of roll downhill from there. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Kiyum. Most people know me as Q. And um, I'm a finance guy that went into tech and somehow all my worlds have collided into one with my recent venture. I started my career in asset management, got my CFA and have been investing since I was 12 years old. So there's literally pictures of me trading stocks, looking in line for IPOs where I grew up in Kenya. And uh, yeah, I really got the, the tech bug in the early days of the blockchain era where I started coding more and more, learned about data science and uh, created my first startup called iComply, which was using the Ethereum blockchain to create new ways to issue uh, digital securities. Uh, I really honed my craft in product development, the whole full stack startup game there before moving on to management consulting at Ernest & Young. And then uh, more recently, I started a company called ESG Analytics which is using uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to automate the ESG analysis, research, and screening process to really uh, target a few issues that we see uh, in the space, especially around coverage and timeliness of this information, which, as you mentioned, is only getting bigger and is being measured in a way that we haven't seen before. So to me, the most important first question, and I think people listening to this podcast tend to be either retail investors or investment managers, and people are just people in general interested in investing in general. But what does ESG even stand for? Yeah, it's a good question. So ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And it's taken many forms over its lifetime. It's not a new term. It's been around for a few decades. It started off as, you know, corporate social responsibility and then responsible investing, RI. So CSR, RI, and now the nomenclature we've kind of settled around is ESG. And really what it is, today we measure companies from a financial perspective, 
So their balance sheets, their assets, their, their debt obligations, et cetera, et cetera. But we're really moving to an area where we also take a really hard, deep look at non-financial metrics. So their gender and diversity, their carbon emissions, their, their water use, all of these different factors that are apart from the financials. And as you mentioned, these are starting to have an increasingly more important effect on their actual financial bottom line. And so ESG is this term to encompass all of the different segments and metrics and measures within each of the E, S, and G. Okay, so that's that's a really good breakdown of it. So for me, the reason why I, I was so excited to, to kind of deep dive into this is because there has been that increase in interest from clients and just or prospects or just people in general. And I look at this industry and I start watching a few podcasts on this or even some YouTube videos. And I start to, to combine these two things where you have the data side of people that are building ETFs, people that are building new ideas to, to capture alpha in the future or just the future of investing. And then I look at your business and I feel like there's this great mix. However, when I think about what's been where all the flows are going in the ESG space, so when I look at the the guts of an iShares ETF, I start to find this disconnect between what is actually true ESG or what I define ESG as and then what they're doing themselves. Like I look at the top 20 holdings of these ETFs and none of them to me feel like they're at the forefront of ESG. So can you kind of give me a little bit of a breakdown to as to why that is? Help me understand that and then also kind of where your role and your business it comes in. I love that question. And honestly, that's actually the reason I got into this space. So I love data, I love finance. And the more and more I get into ESG, the more and more I'm really drawn to the philosophy and the people within it. Where I started, though, is that every time when I was at Century Investments and RBC at Dominion Securities and all this ESG stuff was coming around, it just felt like fluff. It felt like what people were talking about when organic and free range came to be, right? And you'd have different people market in this and just slapping a label onto it. I saw this one post, I think it was like late 2019, which was the bottom 20 Sustainalytics uh, rated stocks, which was one of the biggest and is the biggest analyst-based ESG firm. And it was like Netflix and Amazon and Walmart as the bottom 20 stocks, which fine, maybe they're bottom like ESG stocks. But my head was like, that is not the bottom 20 stocks from an ESG perspective in the world. There's no way. And when I started doing the research, I started looking at the actual ETFs and it's like Microsoft, Amazon, uh, all the FANG stocks were the makeups of all of the ESG ETFs. And I'm like, there's something missing here. And the reason that I finally understood like why that was the whole, was the coverage. And so as I dove deep into the ETFs, I realized that most of them use the same analytics or MSCI for the ESG ratings. And MSCI covers 8,500 companies. Sustainalytics covers 4,500 companies. They do this with analysts, and it's a bit of a time lag. And when you think about what that means, think about how many companies there are in the world. And as a result of investment flows needing big companies to go into ETFs, you end up just having this very limited pool of companies that are covered that are now being used to create these funds. Uh, so it's kind of shortchanging some people when they think about where their dollars, their vote with their dollars is going. And that's kind of what we're looking to fix here. Uh, it makes sense, right? There's an analyst bias, there's a size bias. Of course, the top rated companies need to be analyzed. But think about where that leaves a small cap value manager, where that leaves in the private companies. And so what we're looking to do is use alternative data. So data outside of what companies disclose, which is what's used in inputs today. 
to really target all the rest of those companies, right? There's millions of private companies and other public companies. So we have around 60,000 right now. We're really just trying to get the rest of them so that we can do more appropriate ESG analysis, right? Yeah, that's like for me, that all makes so much sense. And it also makes sense from like the iShare perspective where okay. they're, they don't really care. They're just trying to sell an idea. It's a brand. They're just, they're, they're pushing it out there. They're, they're dipping their toes, but, and, and like all new ideas or even trends in markets, it takes time to develop out what um, is the expectation because it's, it's hard to incorporate all of these different things. And like anything, you need to be able to, if you don't have the technology or the data sets or the, the proper way to sort through them, it's hard to really develop a product. So I, I, for, as I go through them, I'm kind of mad at them for pushing this untrue version of ESG, but then I, at the end of the day, I kind of understand it. So moving forward, where do you guys pull your data from? I don't want to give away some of your secret sauce, but I was kind of looking through a lot of the, the providers and routers and Bloomberg and CI and some of the really interesting stuff is coming from like carbon disclosure, the carbon disclosure project. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but like the Zazby Next, Next Network, can you talk a little bit about the data sets, how you guys go about using them and, and, and building them out? Yeah. And so we're, we specifically are a niche player in the in what we know as alternative data. So using data that's outside of corporate disclosures, we still <clears throat> track companies' involvement in sectors like alcohol, tobacco, pesticides, along with the renewable energy and all the positive things. But the core of what we do is a lot of natural language processing. So what we've done is we've taken all of the big frameworks in the world. You mentioned SASB. I'll touch more on that in a second. The UN SCGs, there's all these different frameworks that people are using, uh, and they all have different commonalities, similarities. And so what we created was this top-level taxonomy for ESG. And our algorithms are able to go out in the world, look at unstructured data, meaning press releases, earnings transcripts, all of these different pieces of media for all of these companies on a real-time basis. And we can tag and categorize them, add factors like sentiment to really tell you what's material to a company, both positive and negative initiatives and controversies, uh, and really almost give you an ESG trend line to what's happening within there. You can aggregate this by the industry and aggregate this by company, by fund. And this allows you to then you know, look at a company, see what's related, right? Like whether it's human rights abuses, forced labor, and then see the trend, and then also keep ongoing monitoring of the company as you go forward. We do other tracking, like the, you mentioned carbon emissions that's done through uh, CDP is one of the people that do that. We also have the TCFD disclosures. So we aggregate all of those other metrics as well. The core is really on using these ESG algorithms to go out into the world, use public data to come back with relevant factors. We're awash with so much data today. So really trying to narrow that down from an ESG context. SASB is also a really interesting case here. So they're emerging as the leading framework for ESG uh, reporting, right? And where this is going is machine-readable ESG uh, data. So as companies disclose this to organizations like SASB, similar to today how with the SEC you have automated 10Ks and, and things like that, that's where ESG is going. And you can imagine when the data gets to that point of view, we're starting to get into like this next level of ESG. And so, and where ESG is going now is what's known as materiality. And to your point on the ETFs earlier, they started off with what's known as exclusions. So removing oil and gas or pesticides from the pool of investable universes, right? Leaving you with X number of stocks. Now it's going towards more of integration and materiality. So it's not because you can't just, you don't want to say, hey, 
I'm going to exclude the entire oil and gas industry. What you want to say now is, okay, within oil and gas, what are the material ESG factors and which companies are performing best on those ESG factors? So you have a much broader set and SASB provides this materiality map, uh, which we've integrated into the platform uh, as well. Okay. All right. So, I mean, yeah, that's where I kind of was based on 10 days ago. I was like, you know what? It's an exclusion approach. And now I've kind of come to this, this realization that it's much, much bigger than that. And for me, I think that what's really powerful about this idea, at least and moving forward, is the aggregation of capital into this, this mindset or framework, as you mentioned, and having it deployed and forced upon a board. Yeah. Because if, you're, if you have convinced Vanguard and IROC that this is the way of the future, and it's ingrained in their ability, and they now have all of our money because they got what? You combine the two, they have $10 trillion Huge. in assets under management. Huge. If that's the case, think about the pressure that they can put on all of our major corporations. Everyone always talks about how capitalism is ignorant or um, doesn't care about our environment. But we're getting to this point in passive investing where I think that's probably shifting, where now we have these groups of people that if we impress on, upon them that they need to make these decisions for these boards. Because if you go and you look at the biggest shareholders in each one of the biggest 500 stocks in the United States, I yep. promise you it's very rare to be a single individual or anybody other than IROC or Vanguard. So if that's the case, they can be these like these activist investors and they can be it for everybody. So where do you see that? Like, where do you see your data set fitting in? I like to me, it's the way I look at it is I think I could easily apply this to a, a canvas where I can apply your data sets, be like, OK, this, this is what I want to exclude or these are the companies I want to include because I think they're going to benefit so I can make a custom ETF for people or their own portfolio. But I think your aspirations are larger than just someone like me. I feel like your aspirations are more institutional, more like, a, I don't know, an AQR or something along those lines or a Harvard endowment. So let me know, like, where do you think it fits? Yeah, so where we see, uh, we have a few different markets, right? We have the ESG analysts and portfolio managers and financial advisors who would use this for their clients, right? Financial advisors use it for their clients to, as you say, like determine which stocks fit, create a portfolio, be able to monitor your ESG over time and automate that approach. Portfolio managers and analysts, they'll go in to look at more details around the company and do research to see you know, what makes sense with this data for that company. And where we want to go, and where we are right now as well, is taking our data and developing uh, what's known as an API, so data feed for fintech platforms. So the Robinhoods, the Betterments, the wealth management platforms, where you can then look at a company, you can see its stock information, all the different data, and then have this little widget, which shows you the you know alternative ESG analysis. And for the values that you care about, you can see what's actually happening in that country or in that company. And we do cover countries as well. And a good example is Apple, which typically has low ESG ratings. Every ESG investor is different, right? So if you're coming up there, sure, the ESG rating might be low, but if you're seeing that Apple has these distinct, really negative flags on forced labor that you can actually see a data point on, maybe that deters you or gives you confirmation for something else, right? And that's the power of giving people the data and the underlying within it. Where we see ourselves going from an institutional perspective is Getting back to like the conversation we talked about earlier is having these alternative 
ESG indexes that will actually represent people's values of ESG that they put in, right? Not these, not just a FANG ETF that's redone, but really something a bit more dynamic and a bit more niche. Uh, because our constraint is not getting the 0.05 bips on on AUM. It's just providing good data to uh, individuals and institutions. Okay, that's that's it. Kind of helps me get an idea of where you're wanting to move yourself. And I'm excited myself, or also because we've been toying around with these this custom inter- integration with developing portfolios that make a lot of sense for our clients. I mean, we work with people that work at Shell, they work at Enbridge, or they work at large tech companies, and you can't really include them into, like, if you work at Shopify, you're a client of mine, it's most of your network's tied up in Shopify, so I have to pull that out of your, yeah. your portfolio. So, like, that's kind of the base layer. And to me, this is just another layer on top of that that's going to really start to fast forward this reality of custom indexing. And I just can't, I can't see how it doesn't become a trend in the future because it's it helps people at least show a uh, the way that they view the world. And if you like to vote with your feet, vote with your dollar, invest with your dollar as well, right? And if you can truly do that and do it in a simple manner, I can't, it just, I, this is so great. I think that, like, as you mentioned, like people's views, like everyone is so different, both from an institutional and retail perspective. So what we're really trying to do is go more granular, right? And get people away from a AAA or six out of 10 and giving them the specific data points. Like, do you care about climate or governance or gender diversity or board equality or really cool initiatives and innovation, you should be able to take your specific values and understand that at a company level as opposed to being told, hey, this is ESG. That's not because that's where people want to vote. And that allows them to you know, take that and really make it their own. And I think that's where the world is trying to get to. And that's where we're trying to help. So I'm going to kind of start breaking out of this deep dive here. And I want to talk about what people might be surprised about when looking at this data. So what do I mean by that? Let's say there's 500 companies in the S&P 500 or 505, and I ask you, okay, who, which 20 companies would fall in the bottom 20 in terms of ESG score? And if you were to grab a couple out of that, which ones would you be most would most people be surprised by? Yeah, I think the one that I was surprised at the most when we first started in this analysis, and again, it's going to be relative to the individual people. So I'm surprised to see that in S&P 500, there's like 15 companies involved in animal testing and a whole bunch involved in controversial weapons. And I was surprised to find in some of the ESG ETFs yet even more. That really like made me think twice. But the company that really stood out when we were first doing some of this analysis was Boeing's an aircraft you know, company. And what I didn't put two and two together in my head is that they are involved in controversial weapons, small arms, military contracts. And so they're actually one of the most excluded companies from ESG ETFs because they are involved in so much military conflict, which was really like I knew it, but I didn't know it. Right. And I think this right. is the, some of these small examples which make things stick in your head. And then the other one that came up just randomly, like we were literally just looking at some of the initial flags we got and it was Dr. Pepper. And so I was comparing Dr. Pepper and Monster <laughs> Beverage and the Monster was like pretty cool. They had like, their sentiment was really good. And when I looked at Dr. Pepper, there was like all these like jagged dips in their ESG sentiment. And it was like all of these LGBT uh, diversity issues that they had and all of these different things. And so, yeah, it just made me, you know, think twice about some of the companies that we look at. And I was happy to see one of my favorite brands, which is Yum Brands, which says KFC. They were pretty well known for really good employee policies and gender diversity and LGBTQ uh, rights and stuff like that. So you never know what you find. And this is 
there's more companies that we could ever, I could ever look at in my lifetime. So every time we do a demo for clients, they pull up a company. I'm like, oh, interesting. I didn't know they were bad. <laughs> or <laughs> they're doing these cool things.、Um, but that's just the power, right, of of giving people the right data. Yeah, it's interesting. The more information you give people, it will often it'll shape the way that it'll change. Exactly. It's it's like never meet your heroes because、um, you end up finding out something you wish you never knew. You have this. Yeah, that's、uh, what I mean. Like, I mean, for me, it's just been different. Like going in. To what I thought was ESG and going down this whole path, like my perspective has shifted, and all the people that have been involved in the company now and that we've been introduced to, have, it just continues to blow my mind. Like what's going on in the world when you see it through from this vantage point. Yeah, and you know what? For me, I in my job, I believe that the number one thing for for me to do is to well, one, get my clients to their goals, but then two, I need to make money for them, and I have to be agnostic to these things unless they've given me. The the mandate to take this as a form of care on their portfolio, and、um, so I have to like work with that. And I look at I started doing more of this research, and I look at some of the companies that I have, like Lockheed Martin, and I'm just like, oh, I guess I knew this, but like, man, this score is bad. Yeah, and it's funny because it now starts to tear at your heartstrings in some ways, right? So、okay. uh, Lockheed's a really good example of that because I think it's a lot. It's in a lot of portfolios and. It was in my own before as well, and it's not to say that they're too bad. Actually, like when we look at them compared to others, yes, involved in controversial weapons, military contracts. But if that's what you're you care about, that's it's going to be excluded. But they also have really good gender and board representation and corporate governance and all of those things. So it depends on the client. But that was one of the ones that it just always pops up, right? Like I feel like my example to, to a client every time is like, so here's a company without any flags. Now let me show you Lockheed Martin. <laughs> 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 and、uh, we can see all the military contracts and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, people are always pacifists until they're in a foxhole, and then there's no atheists <laughs> in a foxhole, right? There's a quote for that. But、uh, kind of moving on, I want to shift away from ESG and get a little bit of、uh, sense for you pre this, and and I also think that this would be a really great opportunity for people to understand the the whole entrepreneurial scene in Canada. So you've been very successful and. Pretty much everything that you've done, you've worked in, across a whole number of different areas within finance. So, as you may or may not be in agreement with me, but I think currently Canada is an inspiring country. But to me, it's really spinning its wheels in this entrepreneurial space. So, if you wouldn't mind, kind of talking about a few of the businesses that you've worked with, your experience being in Canada, and also probably doing some business in the United States, and talk about where you're bullish on Canada or not. And where you think that we could steal from the United States or other countries, and, and kind of incorporate it into our approach, whether it be from policy perspective or even just human behavior, and how we should be looking at the startup scene and, and investing. Yeah,、scene. that's a great point. I mean, when I first started, there was a lot of things I didn't know about the startup ecosystem in Canada, and a good example is. The first company that we had, that I had, we barely had an idea on a napkin. <clears throat> like we were like, "This is what we're doing. Here's our slide deck, and we have the team." Had barely built a product, not, not even started, and we went to some investor meetings, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll take you public." We're like, "What?" They're like, "Yeah, we'll give you like five million dollars. We'll take you public," and we're like, "Interesting." <laughs> that really speaks volumes to the issues in the Canadian ecosystem because you get caught from a funding side. Like there's the funding government, and then the kind of ecosystem side. I think. If we're if I was to bucket it, <clears throat> but in the funding side, there's not that much angel funding. <laughs> Excuse me, there's not. 
<coughs> excuse me, there's not that much angel funding for startups. There's all these angel groups that take you through a rigid due diligence process that are honestly more annoying than anything. And there's a lack of seed stage startup funds. There is some later stage funds, but in between, we have the CSE, we have the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Venture Exchange. And so almost always, there's all of this quick money looking to get a startup from idea to public very fast. Raise money, go public, do your thing. And so startups just get caught in between these two things. Whereas I think you have much more patient capital elsewhere, much more influential capital that can really help you as opposed to what we see here, which I think is an ecosystem problem. Because even the money that I've raised for ESG Analytics, the money I've raised for the companies previously, most of this came from outside of Canada. And it was just by nature of that. So I think that makes things hard for people. But one thing that I think we do have going for us is our government programs. So in Canada, if you use Canadian employees, you're able to really tax deduct a lot of your research and development costs. There's a lot of government support and things like that. But I guess the correlate to that is sometimes it detracts from actual work. And you almost have to balance your startup and your burn with not just becoming a government work program. And so there's all these like little dynamics in between. But I think it's growing. I think that we're having some more high profile uh, startups in Canada, right? Obviously Slack and others going public. But I really think the funding ecosystem needs to mature a little bit, especially in between later stage companies and companies with just an idea uh, on a napkin. That's There's that gap that needs to be filled, which I think is really done well in other places in the world, right? In the US and all of these people are willing to allocate capital and make bets on early stage founders. That's what's missing. And ones that can actually help the founders, not just money in a cap table, because that doesn't always do anything. Yeah, no, you did a really good job describing what I find to be. And my, the way I look at it is like in Canada, we have this obsession with maybe quarter over quarter or annual return on, on our invested capital. And then you have so which I define as being this finite game that we play. And then yeah. there's the, the U.S. or just even Silicon Valley more specifically or Denver, whatever. In Austin, where they play these infinite games, where they're okay. more than happy to take a longer approach, where they it creates this very beneficial cycle and feedback loop of supporting one another. Whereas in this finite game that I think Canadians play, and as being in Alberta, I see it even more. I think when you look at oil and gas companies, and it's just very difficult to break out of that. I think that's I think one of the biggest benefits to Americans and their culture is that they are risk takers and in 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 the way that they are also Christians, they feel like there's never an end to their life. And I yeah. think they they treat their businesses very similarly. Alex Danko from I think he works uh, in the finance side of um, Shopify wrote a really good piece on this called The Canadian Tech Scene Doesn't Work. Yeah, I think I saw that recently, right? And he was talking about the finite games and infinite games. And I think it's a perfect summary of kind of what the issues are. But that being said, I think one thing I would say is founders that are established in Canada, that's not, that doesn't have to be a market. Like you can get investment globally. You can go for a global market. And if you're lean and scrappy, hey, you're competing with all the other startups around the world, as opposed to here's the funding ecosystem in Canada or Alberta or Vancouver. That's at least how I see it. But I think people can get caught in not thinking that's available when they start here. Yeah, no, I hope that that changes. And I think with success, that changes. And I also think it's more ingrained in, in more the millennial, maybe Gen Z mindset where we're more willing to live in this space of and maybe play these infinite games, whereas perhaps older generations, they just never had that luxury, right? 
totally. and it's funny you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago that you talk about everybody always wanting to take a company public in Canada because that's the only place where there's money exactly. and it's just a short-term win. That is, yeah, like you said, it, there's just not enough true angel money out there that have, has seen success so that there's people that are willing to imitate it. And uh, it's going to get better because, yeah, Shopify has probably minted 500 millionaires. Yeah. I can't imagine there's, I mean, maybe there's a, a hundred that were minted in the Slack IPO and then purchased from Salesforce. So I'm very bullish on, I mean, Ontario is doing fantastic with, with Ottawa and, and Toronto. And I imagine Vancouver probably will too. Totally. I agree with that. And I think one thing that ha- that has been helped is the, all the legislation around accredited investor rules and crowdfunding. So raising the crowdfunding limits and allowing professional investors, not just people with uh, specific amounts to invest in private companies. I think that whole funding game is really being changed across the world, uh, which is going to be a really cool trend to keep track of over the next you know, decade. Yeah. As somebody who kind of works in that space where I find that it's sad that we don't have access and then some of the clients that I have don't have access to that private investment space because they're either one, don't make the, they don't hit the the required income or net worth or education level. And I think that while it makes sense in a world in which speed and information is readily available and almost in abundance, I think that there can be a, a workaround or an inclusion of these things. And it's clear that it's happening. It's just totally. Uh, how do we harness it? How do we utilize it? How do we make sure that we don't hurt those that maybe were are vulnerable and, and whatnot? Yeah, so, I believe in the space and I think it's going to continue to evolve. And hey, more companies can stay in private and smaller companies can stay private for longer. There's nothing wrong with creating a sustainable business. You know what I mean? And not everything has to be a unicorn. Yeah, no, exactly. Like there's, <laughs> I talk with, I work with a lot of people that are, they run HVAC companies or a garbage dispensing company yeah. or oil and gas services. And they, they feel, they, you watch these, or at least I do, I'm watching this world where, people are turning into being worth $200 billion. And they, that's something that people believe is, is attainable or should yeah. be. Yeah. Or like that's the standard, right? And I think yeah. I saw a really cool post like way, way back, maybe a couple of years back. And it's not so way back, but it was titled like, don't be, be a zebra, not a unicorn. And it's talking about all of these, you know, smaller companies that are generating good cash flow, small good teams and the creating sustainable lifestyles, blah, blah, blah. People have both options. It doesn't, like you said, doesn't always, you don't have to be worth $200 billion in 60 seconds, right? That's <laughs> yeah. not sustainable. <laughs> it, no, is, it's it not is reachable. And is that really yeah. what you want to think about? It. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Traditionally, let's say 20 years ago, and you, you went to your local golf course, and there's people that were driving nice cars. Those people were your HVAC companies and yeah. your traditional business operators, and they lived a nice life. And totally. there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to feel bad because you're not Elon Musk or so anyway, Canadian startups, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And that's actually kind of leads into my next, my next question to you. So you're somebody who has raised capital. If you're a Canadian and you're looking for it, like where do people start? Where do you find mentorship? Where do you find people willing to invest? Like it's, it feels like interestingly last week I had someone ask me like, where do I even get started doing this? So is there anywhere you'd recommend someone start? I think raising capital is an art and a science as well. It's, I think people don't ever realize how much people do want to participate and invest in private companies. So when I initially started with previous company, like we started with, once you get your investment documents and stuff, that's a whole different conversation, uh, but it's actually pretty simple to do. Once you get those going and you start reaching out to friends and family and you kind of put it out there, 
because that's where you want to go first, right? You want to put your own skin in the game. You want to get to your friends and family who believe in you. You'll always find that the energy will start to attract those people in. And it'll come up at dinner conversations, it'll come up at these conversations, and you'll be surprised at how many people be like, yeah, yeah, I'll put in five grand, I'll put in 10 grand, I'll put in 20 grand in before like your seed round is closed. That's actually happened to me twice. And it's just, and both times I'm like, okay, here's my big list of US startup investors and pre-seed funds. And I'm going to go out and do this. And then as I start talking to people, they're like, oh yeah, I'll throw in, I'll throw in, I'll throw in. I'm like, okay, that's awesome. Right. So that's obviously the first place to go. And then beyond that, it's really looking for people that are investing in your sector, finding those pre-seed funds, those seed funds, or those angels, specific angels, maybe. I'm not a big fan of the angel groups, but that's for everyone. And really just hitting the floor, right? Hitting the floor, calling, emailing, going for there. But the more you put yourself out there, the more you actually even talk, you'll always find that people introduce you to people and you get all of these referrals that come in and it just becomes this organic process. Uh, it's quite humbling, actually, because hard to plan on the outset but when it happens you realize hey people believe in you and they do want to invest in you and the opportunity that they see is pretty big it depends on your startup i guess yeah it's this interesting feedback loop and and yeah. positivity and success and it, it kind of just feeds on itself and the momentum is real yeah so. and then don't you know that is like, a, like at least for me now as you go forward the different networks start to coalesce right and from the first startup to the second there is this like ever-expanded network of people that are just cross-firing across each other. And this really helps as you go along. I think that would be incredibly helpful for a few people that I know that listen to this. So I hope that they they kind of pulled something out. And the one thing I'll add additionally is don't be afraid to reach out to people for help because they're yeah. always willing to, they're, more often than not, they're willing to give you a piece of their time because somebody in the past helped them and you pay it forward in a exactly. lot of ways. Right? Exactly. And that's just a lesson for, I think, life in general. Absolutely. So kind of on the way out, we were talking before this that markets are absolutely insane. I've gotten another five text messages since we started recording. Markets are going nuts. What's your sentiment around this Wall Street bet space and crypto? How do you see this working out? Where do you see um, it, it kind of evolving into? Is it going to become a monster? Is it going to die? And yeah, what, what do you, what's your take on it? Yeah, so I'll talk about crypto first because crypto is really near and dear to my heart, especially from my first startup where we were building things on Ethereum. Most people don't know I have a big Ethereum tattoo with the Vancouver Mountains on my left bicep here. That's how much it means to me. And so with Bitcoin and Ethereum, I see like two totally different ecosystems. Bitcoin is a store of value that's really captured the idea of the masses. And the fact that we don't know who it is, it's just like an incredible story. Obviously, the rise has been crazy. But where I want to draw some perspective or caution, like my vantage point, we still talk about things of in terms of Bitcoin versus the US dollar. So you're measuring Bitcoin at 50,000, 60,000, whatever. But that just still means that Bitcoin is not in a usable, real usable state. It means that you're comparing value against it. And I think where we're at now is people want to have it as an investment. So you gain all the traction from ETFs and retail audiences who want to hold Bitcoin as part of a portfolio, which is fine, but it's not got to the usability perspective just yet. And where I think that would happen is when you see a small denomination of Bitcoins like a Satoshi, right? When you see a can of Coke worth three Satoshis at 7-Eleven, like that's the dream, right? And that's a totally different uh, sort of space. So... I think it's on a really cool path. There's a lot of potential. And when you see a small country replacing their currency with something like that, hey, that's maybe where it's going to take off in a, in a new way. That being said, I don't know why, but over the last few weeks, 
I've been starting to think about how, especially in COVID, it's really interesting, right? Like we've all gone through this crazy markets and we're printing more money everywhere. It's interesting to think about there's times where we don't necessarily want only decentralization. We want the ability to print some CERB, some CRB checks and some curb and some stimulus. And it's kind of human nature, like let's get ourselves out of a mistake. So it does make me question how long the lead time to move towards a fully decentralized space is going to be. But that's just uh, just interesting perspective. And then for Ethereum, I think that's a totally different story. That's right now, it's getting to a point where we can create bank accounts and assets and ETFs and seconds at such a low cost. And the asset growth in Ethereum is going to come from us representing real world securities like bonds and equity and all this on Ethereum. And so when you look at the Ethereum price, it'll be interesting. And then when you look at the assets represented on Ethereum, that's going to be a crazy statistic going forward. Yeah, I'm, again, quite the baby in this space. I've been kind of screwing around with it since whatever, 2017. 2016. And me specifically, I find the smart contract feature of of Ethereum to be the most attractive in terms of technology and what I believe to be the future of this this craze. And I couldn't agree. If you've got the tattoo, you must, in some sense, believe that too. I find that Bitcoin specifically scares me in that exact sense. So like you you think about a lot of people talk about the, the scarcity being the reason for its value. And that it's also going to be a currency. And to me, there's a ton of failure there in that one of the features of the US dollar and Canadian dollar and the currencies that we have is that we can create some of it. And that having that is actually makes it more robust and and it allows for us to develop as a system. So I think that while people believe that to be the, the biggest argument for Bitcoin, I find that it's probably the biggest down factor in terms of its reliability as a currency itself. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective, right? And I, I'm sure different places in the world will feel differently because while that's really great for the U.S., I mean, US print, the U.S. printed money is going to destroy economies in other places. Kenya being a good example in, in the currency inflation. So yeah, I totally agree there's a pro and con, and, but I do think that we're ahead of the curve and we'll see some kind of article one day where it's like, do we really need decentralization? What about being able to like print money? And that's going to be a whole thing. No, totally. So I, last thing, I recently, and this is not investment advice, bought some DPI, which is like this index that incorporate or it's a basket that owns all of these DeFi coins. What's your take on DeFi? Is this yeah. stupid? Should I be doing this? <laughs> no, I, I think DeFi is awesome. <clears throat> I mean, so I hold all of my crypto in my Celsius wallet, which is, it's a custodian backed and application, right? And DeFi is just represents, you know, this decentralized finance. It includes so many things, loans and ETF baskets and whatever, loan obligations. And one of the prime examples of DeFi is the loans that you can get on crypto, right? Just take Ethereum, for example, like you're able to go out and get 12% interest on your Ethereum by just holding it for staking. We're in a world of like 0% interest rates. So these interest rates are getting pretty interesting. And, and there's some things being worked out. But yeah, I think DeFi is crazy. I mean, I think it just has the opportunities to just change the way that we think about financial assets. Like I know there's this thing called token baskets where all these individual people can be like these little traders and you can create your own little ETF basket with a smart contract in like five minutes, right? And it's like a two times long, half Bitcoin, half Ethereum, like ETF. And you're like, okay, done, go. But this is what I mean. As we if somebody can create that in a few minutes and we are now moving to like a composable financial architecture for the world where you can create all these interest rates and like lego blocks of finance right 
for wealth management, for bonds, for issuance, for trade and custodians, interest fees, whatever it is. This just is going to empower so many new ways of doing things. And so I'm looking forward to see what that enables at such a low cost, right? We're just going to get new financialization of different things. And this is where I think DeFi's power really comes in. Yeah, it, it's eliminated so much friction. I have no idea where the bounds are. However, I'm just kind of along for the ride. It's almost at this point, and I think that I have a fairly good understanding of finance, and it's still just like way over my head. And the learning curve is huge, but it's exciting at the same time. So, you know what? I have to admit, I got to bring you back on for some sort of crypto dive. I'd be happy because, to. I'd be happy to. Because I have so much to learn from you and like i'm just i'm quite i get a lot of questions about it and i'm a pretender trying to help people out in, in understanding it so i'd love to to learn a little bit more yeah and i think when people see like the new like ethereum apps <clears throat> it just helps put perspective right because it's like exactly what you today but a little bit different right and just that difference helps just shape new ways of doing things so that, that's the cool part no, absolutely. I'm going to cut you off there. I have to have you come back because that would be just way too much fun for me. I very much appreciate having you on. And you. yeah, I appreciate it. And I want you to enjoy the rest of your Monday and we'll definitely be chatting in the future. Sounds good. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you want additional context or are interested in any of the people or links we mentioned, head over to our website. It's reformedmillennials.com and click the podcast tab. It's going to have all of the links there for you, as well as the show notes and all the past episodes. While you're on the site, make sure you subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It's got a summary of all the most popular stories and trends from the previous week. By the way, this should be common sense, but this podcast and our website are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Joel does work for Gold Investment Management. And all opinions expressed by him, myself, or any podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of GIM. Clients of Gold Investment Management may actually hold positions discussed in this podcast. Have a good day, everyone.